to Makeup Lessons for Life. I'm your host, Sharon Braxton. Thanks for tuning in today. Last week, we had a great season opener entitled Ignite You First. And our guest was Judy Fox, who is the president and founder of Ignite International. As a former NCAA Division I volleyball coach, Judy utilizes the universal language of sport to break generational cycles of trauma and ignite generational cycles of hope. And she does this all over the globe. Well, during her interview, Judy talked a lot about the new domestic initiative that her company launched in 2019 called Ignite You First and the inspiration behind it. Katie Phipps, a beautiful, courageous young woman whose moving story of victory in the face of extreme trauma and loss, it just really tugged on our hearts so much that we decided that we had to bring Katie into the studio and sit to have her sit down in our makeup chair and share her personal journey to healing and wholeness. So listeners, I'm telling you right now, if any of you right now in this pandemic situation, you're feeling overwhelmed, you have challenges obstacles that seem insurmountable, then you need to stay tuned because Katie's story will give you just what the doctor ordered, an injection of hope, and then the fight, the fight that you need not to give up, give in, or give out. Her story is also a reminder that God can and He will redeem a life. He will do it. He'll turn our ashes into beauty, transform our mourning into gladness, and turn our despair into praise. But before we bring Katie on, I want to introduce my co-host, dear friend, and executive producer of the show, Peggy Fraser O'Connor. Hi, Peggy. Hey, sweetheart. How are you? I'm great. This is awesome. We had such a great time with Judy last week, and um, I have to tell you, Katie, your story resonated so much with me. I don't talk very much, hardly at all about it, but... Back in 2011, I was a victim of a crime, and um, it was horrible. And I, I struggled with what I was supposed to do to deal with that situation, and not anywhere near what you have experienced at all. And when I heard your story and I understood what was going on, it just reaffirmed to me that when I look at your life, there is no person on earth that can experience the worst that God's ability to redeem is not present if we let him. His ability to cause us to forgive, to transcend, and and it's just, I can't tell you what a shot in the arm it was for me and a reminder in my own life that we can overcome anything through the power of God. So I'm so thankful that you've flown all the way in and that you're here to visit with us and I can't wait for Sharon to get started. Well, our segment today is called From Trauma to Triumph. Trauma to Triumph. And our special guest, as I mentioned earlier, is Katie Phipps. She's a paralegal and single mother of two from Amarillo, Texas. As the director of strategy for Ignite You First, Katie works side by side with founder Judy Fox to inspire, empower, and equip teens and adults who are caught in cycles of trauma and give them the tools necessary to break those cycles so that they can experience hope and pass it on to future generations. Katie is extremely effective in her mission because like so many of those she seeks to inspire, she too has suffered years of hardship and trauma that could have irreparably damaged her spirit and literally destroyed her life. Growing up in a fatherless home with a mother who struggled with addiction, Katie lived life on her own with very few boundaries, which led her to experiment with drugs, drop out of school, and become a teenage mother at the age of 16. In her 20s, Katie faced the hardest and scariest time of her life. She was wrongfully charged, arrested, and incarcerated for a serious crime she didn't commit 
and she spent 15 and a half months in the county jail before her innocence was revealed and she was released. Katie's case has been featured on Dateline NBC and Killer Affair on the Oxygen Network. But you know, Katie's story is not a black or white story, nor a male or female story. It's a human story. And what the enemy meant for evil that could have destroyed her future, the Lord used for good and is restoring her life one day at a time. As Peggy was mentioning earlier, she is the epitome of a life redeemed, living out her dreams on purpose, with purpose. Katie, thanks for flying here. You jumped on a plane from Amarillo, and we are so thankful that you could take time off from work to be here. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to sit with you ladies today and chat. Well, like I told you earlier, I feel like I know you. I know we've never met. And besides your two fabulous kids, you know, Judy Fox is your number one fan. (laughs) And she's told us so many great things about you. How exciting is it for you to be working with her in Ignite um, You First project? I am so excited about Ignite You First. I can't wait to see how many lives this is going to change. Judy is absolutely been one of my Simon of Cyrene. She gets me through some really tough days. And, uh, you know, without her and her vision for the past, gosh, 20 years, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell my story. She She's definitely given me the platform for that. Could you ever have imagined in your wildest dreams that the traumatic experiences that you've had, somebody would be able to get hope from what's happened to you? No, I never thought that I would be a beacon in the night. Yeah. Well, a little later in the show, we're going to give you a chance to really talk about your work with Ignite You First. But first, I want to start back with you at the beginning. I think it would help the listeners if we went a little sequentially through your life. And I want to start with your parents. I know that your father passed away when you were very young. How old were you and what was the cause of his death? Uh, My father passed away uh, just a month before I turned two. Oh, he had uh, that's young. Uh, I was I was just a baby. I don't remember him. He yeah. had um, he had lung cancer and it spread to his brain. He ended oh, up having a stroke. Rough. Oh, and uh, yeah, August of uh, 1987. Was it sudden? Like something that just mm-hmm. happened quickly? No, man. We knew that it was coming. Oh. I mean, it was. He was very very sick. And in the 80s, obviously medical technology is not like we have today so there was very small chance that he would have survived it how did your mom cope with his death i think that they probably should have just pushed her into the coffin with him yeah um my father was her life and my mother is a very good example that you can die from a broken heart you can. You, you really can. can. I've even had a friend where one parent died of a heart attack or something, and within two hours, the other person was grieving so that they died. And it seems like you can't believe that that could happen. But So how was she able to care for you during her childhood? Uh, she remarried for a little bit, uh, maybe three or four years after my father passed away, but uh, the alcoholism started first. She started drinking more and more, and that that marriage didn't last because of that. And when then that marriage failed, um, we had some pretty awful things that happened to our family. My brother was in a, a gas fire when he was nine. Oh, my and God. And 87% of his body sustained third-degree burns. And after hey, that, lady. my mother, uh, they committed her for a little while, and after that, it was... 
anything that she could get her hands on just to take the pain away. That's a lot to deal with, Katie. That's a lot to deal with. How is your brother now? Oh, he's fine. He's he's fine now. He's actually, or was, a volunteer fireman. My, Are you serious? <laughs> yes. He said the fire couldn't take me, so I'm going to go oh, walk through goodness. it. Oh, my goodness. Um, my oldest brother as well, he is a captain in the fire department in the town that I live in. And uh, they just, um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And my brother is a very good example of that. Well, your mother, and I know I read, it was also drugs too, right? She was using anything she could numb the pain? She she started with alcohol. It moved on to crack and cocaine and then uh, eventually heroin. Um, Mm. She ended up contracting hepatitis from sharing needles with other addicts and her health declined very, very quickly. Okay, Katie, that's a lot. What was your relationship like with her, though? I mean, she was my mother. Mm -hmm. I loved her. I remember the days when she was sober. She tried. I think she tried a lot. She was in and out of rehab. I lived uh, with family members. I mean, I was just passed around um, most of my young life. And she, she really did try to get it together. And when she was together, she was really great. But she couldn't keep it together. What was she like when you were around her when she was under the influence? Oh, man. Um, She screamed a lot. She cried a lot. There were a lot of fights. Most of the time, I couldn't even understand what she was saying. I don't think she really had control of her mind or body. Uh, It was like a... She was almost like a zombie. She was alive, but she was dead. How is this affecting you? Because this is your mom. And what ages are you during this time? You're in elementary school or junior high? Elementary school through junior high. Uh, You know, honestly, I thought it was normal. Wow. It wasn't, was it upsetting? Yes. Did Did I stay awake at night wishing that my mommy would get better and that things would get easier and that maybe we could have a home and not live in a crack hotel or maybe we could have a family and a Christmas and you know maybe eventually I could have those things that the other kids have like a mommy and a daddy but I was so used to that lifestyle with her that it was just another day. Well you were mentioning those holidays and I'm thinking of all the things that kids do when they're growing up. What was your everyday life like? I mean, you know, school, meals, games, playing. What's happening? I was raised on survival. Mm. We survived meal to meal, day to day. There was no plane. I mean, there was really no toys. The only time I ever had a childhood is when I was not in my mother's care. That's the only time I ever really had holidays because there was no money for holidays. There was no family that wanted to deal with my mother on Thanksgiving because she was too high. So therefore, I didn't get to participate in Easter, Thanksgiving, or Christmases. Okay, under these circumstances, this has got to be affecting you and your image. What's happening to your self-esteem and your image of yourself? I think most of how I dealt with it was by ignoring it Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I was older that I realized how how bad it affected me as a child even as an adult a lot of it I try I've tried really hard to forget because it's just so painful but day to day 
you know, I just wanted to be like the kid across the street. Of course you did. Of course you did. Kids want to be kids. They just want to play on the slide and the swing and the seesaw and the park and all of that. So you missed all of that. I didn't get any of that. So Katie, with your father gone, you never had that relationship and your mother um, addicted. Did you feel, even though you had family helping, did you feel abandoned, neglected? Absolutely. And how did you cope with that? You know, me and my my brother, we went through it together. And um, my brother is just two years older than me. And we just, we just leaned on each other. That was, he was my only friend. He was the only person that I could trust. And it probably would have been a lot worse without him. Mm. But we made it sure that each other knew that we were going to be there and that nobody was going to hurt the other because we were there to protect each other. And when you grow up like that, you you learn not only to survive, but you learn how to, I, I guess, become territorial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's yours? Mm-hmm. And you fight for what's yours. And I was going to ask you, what about friends? Did you have any friends? I had some friends, but they weren't good friends. Right. Right. Not a positive influence. Absolutely not. Well, through all of this, did you have any awareness of God or any kind of understanding that there was a Lord above that loved you? When I was young, uh, my grandmother would take care of us, and she um, attended the local Baptist church, and she took us every Sunday, and uh, she tried her best to give me what nobody else could give me. The one thing that she knew that if she instilled in me, I would go back to in the future. Absolutely. She was older. She had cancer. She knew she wasn't going to be around long to take care of me. And she gave me the one gift that she knew would keep giving. Do you have any memory of maybe sometimes just lying on your bed and praying to God or talking to God or anything like that when you were hurt? Oh, yes. I still do. I knew that he was the one that could change it. He could, if, if what my grandmother taught me about our Lord, he could take it away. He could make my mom better. He could change it. He could fix it. And I begged him mm-hmm. every day to do it. Let's transition to your teenage years because I know you had, with all that's going on, you had very few boundaries and very few rules in your life, and that can be a recipe for disaster for a teenager. So tell us some of the challenges you faced during those years. Oh, gosh. I was an awful teenager. Really? Oh, man. You know, at that point, my mother was in and out of jail. I can't tell you how many times I've watched her uh, be arrested and just the insanity that came with her. In eighth grade, I had a coach that had said, he lived down the street from us, actually, and and I came in after a couple of days of not being there, and he had watched my mother get arrested with me a few days earlier, and he said in front of the entire class, he said, uh, you know, I'm really surprised that you're even here, seeing how your mother can't even stay out of jail. Oh, well, that's nice. Oh, it was wonderful. I packed up my back. I got my backpack, and I walked out of the classroom, and he said, if you leave, I'm going to call the liaison after you. I said, call him. And that I is so home. cruel to I say walked, that publicly to somebody. It was it was pretty embarrassing. I mean, I I was a poor kid that went to a rich school. Oh, so it was even more humiliating. And that was that was the end of school for me. I never went back after that. 
So you dropped out I in dropped, the eighth grade, I believe, right? Uh, like four weeks into eighth grade, I dropped out of school. Okay, and then you actually got introduced to drugs, or drugs became a part of your life. How did that happen? You know, I thought it would be the one thing that would bring me and my mother together. That if maybe if we were just high together, she would want to be with me. It is so interesting to me that children will go out of their way to try to reach a parent. They'll do whatever they need to do or feel like they need to do to reach that parent because the love is still there no matter how they're behaving. And you want your mother. That's what you're basically saying. You want a relationship. I I wanted my mother. I chased her. I, Mm. I can't tell you how many times I watched that car pull away with her in it and I would just run after her screaming for her to come back. So I thought that maybe. It's okay, honey. I know, Katie. I don't know, but I can only imagine. Your heart hurts. Your heart hurts. Maybe if I could find the one thing that my mother loved more than me, then maybe if I did it with her, she would love me. But all we really did was just get high, but not together. So I followed down the same path she did but I always made it a point to not do the drugs that she did I had to do the different drugs I had to do the methamphetamine and the acid and and all the hallucinogens and um you know it ended up just putting me down at the same level as her except that it didn't bring her back do you think that she had any idea why you were doing drugs and what you were trying to do. I think at that point, she just wanted me to go away. So she'd throw me a pack of cigarettes and a six-pack of beer and say, go on, go go do whatever you're going to do. And, you know, eventually we ended up in, you know, some of the... Um, some of the really bad crack hotels in town. And, um, you know, one day she decided that... Uh, I was old enough and she was out of money and out of drugs so she thought that the best way to overcome her insufficiencies was to give me up for those things oh no i'm so sorry katie and uh yeah i mean it was uh i mean what mother does that to her daughter somebody who's not in their right mind honey i know uh, it, it took a lot of years for me to come to terms with the things that she did, but it still hurts knowing the things that she did to me or the things that she let happen to me at 12. So now you're in those teen years and you're discovering boys and all of that. And so what happened in that vein? I, I wish I got to discover boys. No, I was, they were just kind of thrown at me, like, you know, take care of this. Um, I, I, I did whatever I could do. You know, I did what my mother did. I did whatever I could do to hide the pain, to suppress the pain, mm-hmm. to drown the pain. And um, I, I did have one boyfriend through that who uh, ended up being the first person or the first man to lay his hands on me. And I was just 13, and I I didn't understand, well, I'm giving you everything that you want. Why are you beating on me? Well, because those people wanted the exact same thing that my mother wanted, money. 
Right. And I was the way for them to make the money. Wow. Did anybody ever know what you were going through? Did you tell anyone? There, there were a couple of family members who knew. But um, at that point, I think they were just tired of dealing with two kids that weren't theirs. Yeah. And uh, tired of having to deal with my mother's drama through it all. Um, you know, once I hit eighth grade, 13, 14 years old, I was done. I was done being passed around to one family to the next, knowing that I didn't belong there. That wasn't my family. And I just, I just took off. And I decided that if, if my mother can't take care of me and, and my family doesn't want to take care of me, not saying that they wouldn't have it, I don't want to make them feel like that I don't appreciate everything that they've done for me. But there's only so much that a family can take when there's only one income and now four kids to take care of with no help. So I just, I, I did what I had to do. I, I, I hit the streets and I, I was homeless. And wow. I did what I had to do to eat, and I did what I had to do to find shelter, and I survived. And, you know, I want to stop a second and just say that, you know, this is such a fatherless generation. Yours was different. Your father passed away. But so many young kids don't have a dad in the home, and they're missing that father figure. And you were, too. And I was wondering, especially the bond between a dad and his daughter usually can be very strong and validating for her. And you didn't get that. Do you feel like you could tell the absence of a father in your life while you were growing up? You could feel it? I could feel it. I could see that the kids around me whose dads were there were much happier than I was. They were taken care of. They had everything. They had a nice house and a car and uh, you know a mommy that would pick them up from school and daddy that would come home with you know dinner and and puppies and christmas presents and bicycles and and you would see them at the park together or you know just taking a walk down the street together and they have all of that and i was alone so while you're on your own, taking care of yourself, because you feel like that's all you can do, uh, you're 16 and you get pregnant. Did you have any support, any help? Um, I did. I had a little bit of help. Um, my mom basically told me that my life was over and called me a bunch of names and, you know, um, good luck dealing with it. But it was also the first time that I ever saw a change in my mother to uh, a few days before I went into labor. I told her, I said, Mom, if you're not preg or if you're not sober when I deliver this baby, you're not going to be in the delivery room. That was the first time in many, many years that I had seen my mother sober for four days straight. Wow. So I think that when my, my son came along, that not only did he change my life, but I think he changed hers too and 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 again I had my brother and he took care of us uh, up until I had my second child at 18. Right I was going to talk about that because you're 18 and a lot of teenagers are going to the prom they're filling out college apps and figuring out where they want to go to school and you are delivering your second child and the baby is born um, your mother dies your mother dies she doesn't even get to meet her grandchild. That's hard, Katie. And, and how did she die? Uh, my mother died from hepatitis C and cirrhosis of the liver. I buried her exactly one month after I turned 18. 
Right. And that's from the drinking. From the drinking, from the drug use. Uh, I was seven months pregnant with my daughter when she passed away. And see, now you have two kids. And you're young. You're 18. I'm thinking about even when I had two as an adult. It's a Mm. lot of work. Mm -hmm. Even if you have all the resources at your disposal, it's a lot of work. So you're 18. You've got two young children and limited education because you dropped out in the eighth grade. So how are you making it? Um, I waited tables at IHOP swing shift. I uh, I depended on my brother a lot to make sure the rent was paid. Um, and eventually, I just packed up everything that I had and my kids, and I moved to Florida. And I started over. I knew that I wasn't... When I had my son at 16, I knew that I may not be able to give him much but I learned what not to do. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the only thing that I could ever give in in this world that would not end would be my love. And I would never let him feel the way that I felt growing up. And I would never let my daughter feel the way I felt growing up. So I packed up all of my stuff and I moved 1,400 miles away so my daughter could have her daddy. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Why Florida? I, um, I moved down there to be with her dad. And, uh, well, to be honest, it's not even her biological father. It's just a man who decided that that was going to be his daughter. And he was there when she was born, and he's still there today. Oh, wow. Wow, that is so That is a stand-up guy. And I love your decision. You know, I had a lot of trauma. I didn't get the attention that I needed to get, but I am going to make sure my, my kids feel loved and wanted and they don't feel neglected. That is so good, Katie. That's all you can give them. I mean, I didn't have I didn't have an education. I didn't have money. I didn't have anything. But I had love for them mm-hmm. that I felt nobody ever had for me. Well, let's fast forward. And I know that you did get married. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and, and that relationship. Yeah, I moved back from Florida. And um, I had run into um, a person that I knew growing up. And um, we started talking, and eventually a relationship happened. And in November of 2013, uh, November 10th, 2013, we got married. Were you happy? Up until November 11th, 2013. Mm -hmm. Oh, so then as soon as you got married the day after, you knew something was wrong. I knew. Everything changed as soon as we got married. I went from being someone that he loved and wanted to now you are my wife and you shall serve me. Oh. I became property very quickly. How did you handle that? Um, Well, I'm rebellious by um, nature, maybe. Uh, I definitely don't like being told what to do. And it it didn't go very well. A lot of fights started after that. I I mean, I, I don't like being told how to dress or... How to wear my hair, or where mm, I can go, or very controlling. how to talk to my kids, and it, 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 I learned the error of my way very, very quickly. And how is all this affecting the kids? Um, well, my kids never have never really heard me fight before, or have to yell, or defend myself, or defend them. I've never put them in a position where they've had to experience that. And it wasn't very long after the marriage that my son came to me and said, can we just leave? Wow. Oh, my goodness. Do you think they were afraid for you? 
I think that there was some stuff going on that I didn't know about. I think that not only were was he controlling me, he was controlling them too, but mm. I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. He was very manipulative. He was definitely a chameleon. He His colors changed to the background. He would be whatever anybody wanted him to be. Anything that he could say or do to make you like him, that's what he would become. Not just tell you or lie to you about it. He would become that. Wow. So what happened to the marriage? Um, well. Did you divorce or separate? We, or? We, we did end up getting divorced. We divorced uh, actually on my son's 13th birthday, except that our divorce was a little strange. Um, he had two lawyers and I walked into the courtroom wearing red and white stripes, handcuffed and shackled. And that's what we need to talk about, because I know that in 2014, you're talking about all the things that happened up to then, but when 2014 hit, everything spiraled out of control, and you're in this nightmare that I could only imagine. You're like, could somebody please wake me up? So tell us about the horrific events that changed your life that year. Well, um, we'd been married for five months, and one day, on April 11, 2014, I was arrested for first-degree murder. Um, a few days prior to that, uh, his first wife was found murdered on the side of a dirt road mm. outside of, uh, of the place that I live. And um, uh, at first they thought that maybe it was a, a robbery gone wrong. Um, she was pistol whipped, but during the autopsy they found a bullet in her brain and realized that she was shot execution style. And this is outside where you live. That's where it happened. This is the. I, I'm from a town in Texas called Amarillo, right. um, and this happened on a road. It's called Helium Road, which is what they the news ended up dubbing it was the Helium Road murder. And um, she was found. It was southwest of town. She was found out there on the side of the road next to her vehicle. And when you found out about it, what was what were you thinking? Um, I found out in the driveway of my house when a homicide detective walked up and asked to question me. And um, I was able to, thank God, get my son out of earshot before the detective told me that she had been found dead and they wanted to know where I was for the 24 hours before that. And what did you say? Oh, I was at a friend's house with uh, her and her son, my son, uh, my cousin, and one of his friends on the so other side of a, town. you had an alibi. Oh, I'd, yes, I had five. Wow. Wow, That's so amazing. what happened next? Well, see, the thing about my ex-husband is, is he has a very good way of making people believe him. And he had a little bit of help from a certain individual that I will not name uh, to make the police believe that I was the one who killed her. Because that's what I was going to ask. Why are they questioning you? Why are they thinking that you even need to be talked to about this? This is your, you know, ex. this is his ex-wife. What does this have to do with you? Well, he, he wanted it to be me. Mm. And after the fact, we kind of realized that maybe that's all the marriage really was. That he had probably planned this out longer than we thought. That he knew he was going to do this, and he just needed someone to put he the blame on. He needed a fall on. guy. He basically. needed a fall guy. Wow, Katie, 
So what happens with the police and you? Because I know that they did come to your home to arrest you. Um, they, they arrested me at gunpoint in front of my son outside of my brother's house. And um, I spent four days naked in a suicide cell in central booking to uh, fight with the detectives. I think I went through seven interrogations, two polygraph tests, and 467 days in jail. Okay, I've got to go back to your son. That's an image he's not going to get. I mean, how uh, how did he handle that? That's a lot. He's only 13, you said? Um, well, he was actually 12 at the time that it happened. But, uh, you know, he lost a lot of respect for authority. Right. Um, of course, they questioned him, too. But he was with me that night. So well, they, see, I'm confused. If you, you have this great alibi, what happened? They didn't care. The police didn't care. They didn't need proof. They didn't want proof. The detective just wanted his idea and his theory to be right. He made the evidence fit his theory of what happened. So, so four days... You were naked in a cell, suicide watch. That's because you were showing yourself to be dangerous? You wanted out. Were you fighting? Well, I mean, I was very scared. Right. I mean, when when they arrest you for murder and they take you back to a detective who tells you, I don't care what you have to say, you're going to tell me you did it. Well, no, I'm not going to tell yeah. you that because that's a lie. Well, that's all I want to hear from you. And if you don't have... If you don't, if you can't tell me that, then, well, you know what? Maybe she's just a little too crazy right now. Maybe we should isolate her naked Katie, in front of a camera. And I know while you're there, I read that you even heard them talking about things like the death penalty or life in prison. How are you processing all this? This is scary stuff. It, it was, I was terrified. Um, the first few months, I, I don't really remember a lot of how I got through it. I, I do remember one of the first days of sitting in my cell in general population, I kept hearing this voice tell me, this isn't going to take long. You're not going to be here long. And, and then as things kept mounting, you know, we were waiting for, for all of this evidence to come in. What the prosecutor thought was going to be the evidence that would put me under his jail I knew was going to be the evidence that proved that I was innocent, except it took 15 and a half months to get cell phone records in. And I, I knew it would happen. I knew it would come. But when they threaten you with the death penalty, which is a punishment for capital murder or life without parole, um, they arrested me for first degree murder. I went in for a bond reduction hearing because my bond was set at half a million. And while I was standing in the courtroom in front of the judge waiting for my bond reduction, they handed me a warrant that changed my charge from first degree murder to capital murder. And capital murder means that they can stick a needle in your arm. And I lost it. I imagine. Because I was going to ask you about bond and bail. Why did you have to stay there? You, they denied any type of bail? I, I had my bond lowered to $400,000. Oh, oh, okay. A mere, a mere $400,000. My, my family doesn't have $400,000. Right. Right. So, of course not. So we, we waited it out. And we did, did you have a lawyer that was fighting, trying to get this evidence to be seen that would exonerate you? I, I had a lawyer. 
um, I, I respect this man very much, except for this particular lawyer had never set first chair in a capital murder case. In fact, he had never tried a murder case in his entire career. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was going up against a veteran district attorney who'd been practicing law longer than I'd been alive and had been the district attorney of that county for 16 years. Okay, you're sitting there and you know you have an alibi. You know that there are phone records. There are things that are going to prove my innocence. But in the meantime, I've just got to sit here and wait. And that is a long time, Katie. How did you keep from losing your mind? You know, I I was very scared that they were going to hide the evidence. So I spilled the entire case and the entire story to national media. Because I felt like if somebody on the outside knew the truth, they couldn't hide it anymore. And the more I spoke with them, the the less anxious I got. And, And maybe it was just the fact that time went on, but eventually I had to pull out of myself and start focusing on the people around me. I had lost 50 pounds. I wasn't eating. I couldn't sleep. And I realized that, you know, my heart was probably going to give out. My organs were probably going to give out with the condition that I was in. And I would, I would, I went to church every day that they were there. And I finally just realized, you know, maybe this isn't just about you. Maybe this is about everybody around you. And so I started really, you know, it's hard when you're in jail because you can't just make friends. One, most of the time, the people that you would make friends with aren't people you want to be friends with, but you can't talk about your case because they'll pull those people out of that jail and now there's jailhouse informants, Mm -hmm. which they had tried to get a few of those. So I had to be very cautious who I talked to. So, you know, I just said, you know what, why don't you quit talking about your problems and let them talk about theirs? Because if they're telling you all about them, then they have nothing that they can say about you to the district right. attorney. So I just I just started listening. But while all this is going on and you're there, your husband is out and he's free and he's just living life to the fullest. Oh, yeah. And so how is that affecting you? Oh, I mean, well, he had a new girlfriend in my house four months after I was arrested. I mean, he's just, he just did whatever he wanted. They didn't... You know, the, the the sheriff's department and the DA didn't really care that he gave them four different stories. Um, he just went out and bought motorcycles and got new girlfriends and divorced me and took all my stuff and took my truck back to the bank and, you know, just disassembled my life one piece at a time. But what I think is amazing is I was watching an interview that you did with a local news reporter and she asked you about your heart toward your husband and you said you forgave him it took a long time i i imagine it took it took you know the one good thing about jail is you have a lot of time for self-reflection and i had to make a decision on a few things um you know jesus said on that cross father forgive them for they know not what they do Maybe that was a plea to his father to forgive us for what we were doing, but maybe it was his last commandment. If our Father in heaven can forgive us for all of the evil things that we do, then we must be able to forgive the people who hurt us, whether they were sorry or not. Mm -hmm. And I took the time to really reflect on myself and the Word to forgive my mother and to forgive him. And it was very, very difficult. 
In fact, if I hadn't been in jail at all, I probably would have never forgiven my mother. Were you able to forgive the police and the district attorney? I have forgiven the district attorney. I have not forgiven the detectives. And that forgiveness probably won't come until they're unable to do this to anybody else. So that's your motivation for the rest of your calling, your life? I... I I think I will eventually end up forgiving them, but I also don't need them in a position where they can do this to anybody else either. I understand. So it's not that I, I hate them. I just think that they shouldn't be police officers. Right, right. right. Well, thankfully, thankfully, praise God, after 466 days of wrongful incarceration, you were released, and you're innocent, and you're free, and I can only imagine how it felt to be free what was the first thing you did when you oh got my out? god <laughs> um i you know i i just stood in the sunshine mm. i looked at the stars i changed my last name <laughs> back to my maiden name um you know i just everything went in slow-mo then to like you know that's when you really savor life when you know that it can be taken away from you so quickly by nothing that you have done but by everything someone else has done i can relate to that and you savor everything you savor that bite of steak you savor that breeze and you just love with everything you can but you have to face the facts too that you've lost everything while you were there, you lost your career, you lost your home, you lost your car. How difficult was it for you to rebuild your life and then um, acclimate back into the community? It's a small community. It, um, you know, I will say that the court of public opinion was far worse than the actual courts. Um, it's I still deal with issues even five years later of of what people think about me. I was homeless. I had nothing. I had whatever my ex-husband decided to pack up and give to my brothers for me. My clothes was about it. I slept on my best friend's couch. I um, I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. I didn't have a job. And nobody wanted to hire me because they all knew who I was. And Even though you have been exonerated. Oh, they didn't care. They didn't care. Small town politics. Absolutely. Absolutely. They you know people just need a little little reason to not like you whether it's true or false how did you get around it i i still deal with it today but you know i i had to just i had to quit caring what everybody thought about me and yes. i had to realize that they do not dictate my life i have had these men my ex-husband and these police officers and these you know attorneys tell me what I need to do. I've had these jailers tell me where, what I can, where, where I can sleep, what I can eat, when I can eat, what time I have to wake up, what time to have to go to bed. And I said, I'm stopping letting everybody else dictate who I am and what I'm gonna do. And I said, you know what? If you don't like me, kick rocks. Go that way. You don't have to talk to me. You know what helped me in in healing in my own life is is the understanding that. Nobody gets the right, has the right to define you but God. Absolutely. He is the ultimate. He knows you inside and out, backwards and forwards, the beginning and the end of your life. There's not one day that you will ever live that he's not known. 
He defines you, no Absolutely. other human being. And that takes that power away mm-hmm. from other people. It does. But then in addition to losing your freedom for a year and a half, your children suffered because they didn't have their mother there with them. And then the two children of the victim, well, they lost their mother to death. That's a lot of collateral damage, don't you think? It was very, very bad. He tried to take the mothers of four children. Mm-hmm. And um, it it breaks my heart that my children get to move forward with me and those girls don't get to move forward. Right. right. Gives, gives you a little bit of survivor's guilt. Well, although it took over two years for the police to arrest your ex-husband, eventually he was tried by a jury and convicted of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison, and you had to testify at that trial. How difficult was that? It wasn't that difficult at all. It wasn't? Okay. <laughs> no, it really... I mean, I was scared. I, d- I definitely didn't want to see him that seeing him was the hardest, but to tell those jurors what he had done to her and me was the easiest thing I've ever done. And I'll do it a hundred more times if I have to. Wow, Katie. Mm. I just have to kind of breathe from all of that. I'm with you. (laughs) Oh my God. Now, I know you got your freedom back and all of that, but you still had a little bit of anxiety, which is easy to understand, and depression, and you sought therapy. Did it help you? It, it did. Uh, eventually, um, I realized that I couldn't do this alone. It started with me, but it didn't end with me, and I needed help. And I, I sought psychiatrist, therapist, uh, you know, I say a support system, but I don't even want to call it a system. I found two or three really good people that just had my back, and eventually they did diagnose me with complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. And with that come symptoms such as depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm and flashbacks and night terrors and there's a lot of things I can't deal with like small spaces and the smell of burnt hair because that's what the laundry smells like in jail I I, I get triggered easy and um, it, it's definitely a process it's not something that you heal from it's something that you just manage Right. That's what I was going to say. You're working through with help. Absolutely. And that's good. Well, you know, in the midst of all this negative, to say something positive, you embarked on a challenge, but it was a positive challenge. And you ended up breaking a generational barrier and actually improving your life because you recently celebrated a milestone. Hmm. Tell us about it. A December of 2019, I became the first person in my family to get a bachelor's degree. Oh, and that's so wonderful, and Katie. I, and I know you got it in legal studies. I did. And I'm thinking, what did it feel like? You're walking across the stage, cap, gown, you hear your name, you know what you had to fight through. You know, you're raising kids, a full-time student, job. How did that feel? It felt wonderful. I knew at that moment that because of him, I was unstoppable. That's good. Unstoppable. I love that word. And now you've started a new career as a paralegal, working for a firm that specializes in criminal defense and family law. And those are two areas you are passionate about, right? Yes. Yes. I love my job. I love my boss. I love what I do. Um, You know, there's estimated that 3% of the prisoners in America are actually innocent. Mm. 3%. And there's, I think the last I checked, 145,000 inmates in TDCJ, so you do the math. Well, you know, when I think about everything, the bad, yes, but I also think about what you've accomplished. I think of one of my favorite scriptures, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Do you feel that in your life, God truly did have a plan and that you're walking it out right now? I absolutely know he's got a plan and I have had the ability to look back on my life and see the stepping stones that he has placed in a line for me. I would have never been able to get through jail if I had not gone through what I went through as a child. Mm. And I would not be able to get through what I got through today if I was not able to fight for not only myself, but my children. And now I have enough strength and knowledge that I can fight for other people too. That's a lot of wisdom. And it comes from God when you can actually see how one thing led to another. Even the ugly things, Mm -hmm. the things that are awful. Everything. Well, you know, he also led you with a stepping stone to a divine appointment that you have that I know has changed your life. When Judy Fox, the founder of Ignite International, she's just a total stranger, (laughs) and she contacts you after watching a segment of your story on Dateline NBC, what was your first reaction looking at this uh, Facebook uh, entry from her? You know, I got a ton of messages after Dateline aired, a ton. And I would screen them and I would go through them just a little bit, you know, maybe not all of them, but I saw hers and it really stood out because she was the first one that said that she was actually praying for me and I believed it. Mm. And so when I reached back out to her and I realized all the things that she's been doing throughout her life and her career, and I, I kind of, you know, God said two plus two equals four. <laughs> if the divine appointment, as you said, is standing, you know, right here in your inbox. Did you feel a connection with her immediately? Or? Um, well, at that point, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, um, I was kind of scared of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, That's understandable. I, the first time I met Judy, I was down uh, with some family, and she she asked me out to lunch. And, and so here in the DFW area, I went out to lunch with her, you know, because it's in a public place, so I'm safe, right? Mm-hmm. But after that lunch is when I realized the gift that God had given me. How did it blossom into a friendship? It took some time. Um, Judy has been very patient with me as far as letting my guard down, letting my walls down. And, um, you know, she just, she hasn't left. That's good. She hasn't left. She's just, and she's not going to leave. I can tell everything she's ever told me. She has so much love, affection, oh, just belief in everything you've stood for and everything you've been through and the fight that is in you. And I want, Thinking of that fight, I want you to talk about Ignite, you first. And and I know you inspired it. How did all that happen with you and Judy? You know, with with the CPTSD, I, I, the depression was real. And I was in one of my slumps because it comes in cycles. And, and I didn't really know how I was ever going to get past this. And my brother, in all of his infinite wisdom, he said, Katie... He said, you have been through so much in your life that maybe, maybe if you just let it out, maybe if you used evil for good, maybe, maybe while you're helping someone else, that service will heal you. Mm-hmm. And I, I was crying on the phone with my brother and, and he's telling me all of this. And I just said, you know what, brother, I got to go. And I hung up with him and I called Judy and I said, I need to do something because I am suffocating and I am drowning. And if I stay inside my head any longer, 
I'm not going to make it through this. And she said, you know what I've been thinking about for the past few years? No, but tell me. Something domestic. Something here in the United States that we can do to help any way that we can. And, and we started talking a lot about trauma, but we talked about a lot of different areas of trauma. We talked about abuse, sexual abuse, mm-hmm. uh, parents incarcerated, drug addiction, natural disasters, accidents, mm-hmm. all kinds of things in this world that, ju- I mean, yeah. can you imagine what people in Joplin, Missouri felt like when an F5 tornado ripped through their right. entire town? Right. That right. is trauma. Right. And it doesn't matter what type of pain you've gone through. It's all mm-hmm. equal. It's still pain. Mm-hmm. And so you guys just got together and knew that it was time to work together side by side. And I love what you're doing. And I think about you as a speaker to any group of people. Your story has to resonate with these teens and adults. Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing. Well, you know, I through everything that I've been through in my life, the one thing that I never wanted was for someone who has never lived the life that I live tell me how to fix my life. I call them the suits. I don't want, a, a, a drug addict does not benefit, or maybe they do, this is just my opinion, you may not agree with me, a drug addict does not benefit for recovery if the person that is trying to help them recover doesn't know what they've been through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know, if, if there is one thing in this world, I know pain, I know suffering, mm-hmm. but I also know how to get through it. I also know how to heal from it. I also know how to keep moving forward. And I know how to reach people to pull them along with me, to stand them back up and tell them, if you can get through this first, you have the whole world in the palm of your hand to do whatever you want anywhere God directs you to do it. That's powerful. It starts with you first. It, it started with me first. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. It started with you first. And that's your message. Wow, Katie, are you seeing breakthroughs? I am. Mm-hmm. I am. I am. It, it's a slow process. And anyone who has been through something, if they think that it's just going to go away overnight, it doesn't. But there are people, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that happen to us in life aren't even our fault. Mm-hmm. But we blame ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the first thing that you have to learn, and, and, and something I'm still learning is, okay, you can forgive everybody. But have you forgiven yourself? That is correct. You have exactly. to forgive you first. That's right. You have to love you first. You can't draw from an empty well. That's right. Katie, before I throw this to Peggy, I am so inspired by your life and your courage. Courage under fire. I mean, that was real fire that you walked through. And every time I was listening to you, I was just thinking at any point, you could have given up. You could have walked away. You could have said, it's over. I'm done. I don't care. That's it. And you didn't. And you're not. And you're still in the fight. And he who began a good work in you is going to complete it. Peggy, what are your closing thoughts? Oh, my. Katie... Your story is is so compelling to me, but also resonates to me on a personal level. In South Dakota, the buffalo is a symbol of strength and perseverance. There are vicious storms there where the snow is measured in feet and the winds can be up to 50 to 60 miles an hour. Interestingly though, cattle will turn tail to the storm and drift with the wind until they pile up in corners trampling each other. 
But in contrast, the buffalo faces into the storm and holds fast until the storm passes. There's an obvious lesson here. As soon as storms come, there will always be a temptation to turn away from it, to drift, to give in to fear and despair. And it takes a special kind of courage, grit, and determination to meet the storm head on. Katie, as as we listen to the testimonies of the guests on our show, I often find myself marveling at the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God that I see manifested in their lives. But in your particular story, I see the power of God in you to face a life-threatening enemy and emerge victoriously. Now, you are a healer of others who've been beaten by life and interactions with evil that very few of us can even begin to comprehend. Your journey gives me courage and inspires me to believe that each one of us with Christ are equipped with a power that our finite minds can't even really comprehend, but it's there. One of the names of God is Jehovah Nissi, and it means the warrior God. Sometimes he fights for us when we can't fight for ourselves, and you've seen that. And sometimes he stands up inside us as we have to face the real and present adversaries of life. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and showing us a picture of the overcoming power of God. I personally am encouraged in my faith to trust God and believe that there is no enemy within or without that will ever be able to derail his purpose in my life or in yours. God bless you on your journey as you share your story and breathe hope and life into those who believe their situation is hopeless. You have faced the winds, you've braved the storm of adversity with almost unparalleled courage and conviction you have fought the good fight of faith and no doubt you will continue to prevail. Thank you. If those of you who are listening out there have listened to Katie's story, and perhaps your flavor of trauma is not the same, but it is as she has expressed, trauma nonetheless. And you feel like there is no way you will ever be able to overcome. Sharon, Katie, and I are here to tell you today that God's grace and His power is available to you. And I'm asking you, with whatever voice you have, to cry up. Cry out, but cry up to a living God who is there, who heals you, and who hears you, and who will meet you wherever you are. Father, in the name of Jesus, Whatever is happening to anybody who is in the sound of my voice, where evil has been unleashed upon them in a way that they cannot even begin to comprehend, God, I'm asking you to give them the strength to cry up to you. And I know that you will meet them with a power and a love and a grace and a mercy that is beyond their wildest comprehension. What you have done for Katie you will do for them because you are no respecter of persons. You don't love her any more or less than you love me or you love them. 
Thank you, God, for the power of God. Thank you, Jehovah Nisi, that you are the warrior of God. You are the warrior God who fights for us when we cannot fight for ourselves. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for the miracles that are going to take place this moment today. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. What a powerful prayer. And Katie, what a powerful testimony. Yes. And I'm so thankful that you're using your life to help to heal so many people. And if you're listening and you'd like to get in touch with Katie, she is the director of strategy for the organization. You can contact her at info at igniteinternational.org. Maybe you want to find out how you can donate or volunteer your time or just how you can be of help in any way. Please contact her. And also, this is a good time for you to get Peggy's book, Makeup Lessons, A Testimony of Prayer, Healing, and Redemption at the Makeup Counter. Great stories. And Peggy has great prayers at the end of each chapter. So check it out. It's on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And then our resident... Engineer, recording engineer, and jazz musician Tom Braxton has a new single, Looking Up, and it's going to make you want to look up. And yes. so download it on awesome. iTunes or awesome. Amazon awesome. or anywhere where you download music. And take a moment and go to our website, mlforlife.com. You're going to find out more about our guests. There's a store with products. You can sign up for our newsletter. We would love you to check us out. We'd like to thank our recording engineer and editor, Scott Frazier, who is also a pastor, worship leader, and motivational speaker. Check out his website at nc3wilkesboro.com. That's W-I-L-K-E-S-B-O-R-O.com. We'd also like to thank saxophonist Tom Braxton, our assistant recording engineer, and the one who is responsible for all the original music you hear in the show. You can check out his smooth jazz at www.tombraxton.com. This is a show about the transformation in people's lives and the journey of life that we're all on. And there are lessons to be learned from one another. So please grab a girlfriend, a husband, a brother, anyone special in your life, and join us as we get real. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So until next time, please remember, don't be afraid to sit down in the makeup chair. Because God is going to give you the makeover of a lifetime. For Sharon and me, bye now.